Good afternoon, good evening, 812. How you guys doing tonight? Man, it is so good to be with y'all tonight. I look forward to Tuesday every week. We want to welcome some of our uh, some of the rising freshmen that have kind of come to hang out with us a little bit tonight. Give it up for them. And uh, so let me ask you a question. How many of you guys in here love science? You love science. Where are my science people? How many of you in here loathe science? You're like, I can, I'm just, I'm just not. How many of you just loathe school, period? How many of you just like, I just don't, it's not just science, it's all of it, right? All right, listen, listen, here's the thing. The thing is, is that you may not like science, but I bet, like me, many of you like experiments. Like, I don't know if you've ever, like, uh, had some cool experiments in class. That was always my favorite time of class. When you got to mix some chemicals together and do some crazy stuff like that. Anybody with me? Anybody like that type of stuff, right? And, uh, and maybe you've ever done, you know, you, uh, when you were younger, maybe elementary school, and for your science fair, you made a volcano with the baking soda and vinegar, and it comes out. Anybody ever do that? Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, a few of y'all. Uh, how, about, how about this? How about... How about, have any of you guys ever did the Mentos in the Diet Coke where it like explodes everywhere? Like that's pretty cool, right? Uh, or, or how about the uh, potassium chlorate with a gummy bear? Anybody know what I'm, no? You don't know what I'm, ta- you know what I'm talking about, some of you, no? All right, well if you don't know what I'm talking about, it doesn't go good for the gummy bear, check it out. crazy, isn't it? Just adding one chemical to a gummy bear can make it catch on fire. Now, if you look that up online later, they actually, in this same video after this, they take a gummy bear that's like this big, and they drill a hole in it, and they pour it in there, and it explodes, and it's pretty dang amazing. And so make sure that you check that out. She's like, why didn't you show that? And, uh, and so, because it was too long, too long of a clip. And so, and so when you see these type of experiments, it's fun and, and, it's, and, and it's exciting to kind of do stuff like that. Because what we know is, is that when we mix certain chemicals together, it creates a reaction. And sometimes that reaction activates something. It activates a fire for a gummy bear. And other times, just adding another chemical or two to the equation actually can deactivate the reaction that's already happening. That some chemicals are activators and some chemicals are deactivators. And the truth is that in our faith, much like science, there are things in our life that can deactivate us and deactivate our faith and things in life that can activate our faith. And that's exactly what we're going after in this series. We're going to be talking about over the next several weeks the things that activate our faith and the things that deactivate our faith. And tonight I want to talk to you about something specific that I think is extremely important. Because what I've seen is is that many times in people's lives, especially students' lives, everything's going good, everything's going along, and a moment happens, and all of a sudden, that student's no longer coming to church, that student's no longer spending time with God, that student's no longer connected to to a biblical community and around people that are going to support them and care for them. And it's always this tension when something like that happens. And typically, it's because some experience has happened in their life that has deactivated their faith. Maybe it's a trial that happened. Maybe, maybe it's, it's someone close to them passed away. Maybe it is divorce. 
Maybe it is a myriad of things, and these things can deactivate you if you're not careful. And we're going to talk about some of these over the next couple weeks. Now, here's my question for you. How many of you in this room have ever done something stupid, and you felt bad for it afterwards? Anybody with me? You did something stupid, and you're like, man, I just feel like, what was I thinking? Anybody ever had that moment? You, get, you do something, you're like, what in the world was I thinking? All right, so check it out. <laughs> when, I was, when I was in seventh grade, on my street, I lived, I lived on a farm, and so I lived down this, like, long street. And down at the end of the street was another guy's house and his farm. Now, my friends would come to my house. We'd hang out at my house, and the neighbor kids, you know, the people that were all in our, like, on our street, we, they would all hang out over our, each other's houses. But we would never go near the house at the end of our street. Because at the house at the end of the street lived a guy named Jerry. And Jerry did not like us. Like, it didn't matter what we do, he didn't like us. But the truth is, we did not make it easy for Jerry to like us. Like, we terrorized Jerry, and he terrorized us, and it was just like love-hate relationship. Actually, it was more hate. It was no love. Like, it was a bad relationship going on with our neighbor, Jerry. So, I was the last person to get dropped off on the bus every day. And so, our bus driver would have to drive down the long street past my house, drive down to the end of the street, and it would turn around. Now, the thing is, because we lived on a, Jerry lived on a farm, he had this long driveway. So all the bus driver had to do was to pull into Jerry's driveway, back up, turn the bus around, and drop me off. But because Jerry was a punk, he would not let the bus driver drive in his driveway for any reason whatsoever. So the bus driver would get to the end of the street, and she would have to do like this 50-point like, this like turnaround with the bus to like turn the bus around so she could turn it around to go drop me off at my house. Now every week we would get to the end of the street and the bus driver is frustrated as all get out. I'm annoyed that we're having to do this. It would take forever and finally she would drop me off. And then one day I got a plan. A dirty, rotten, no good plan. So we're driving down the road in the bus. I said, hey, bus driver. Ma'am, I'm 12. I, my voice cracked like that too. I was 12. <laughs> Ma'am, uh, Jerry, Jerry doesn't live there anymore. He passed away. And so now the property and the house has been abandoned. Why don't waste your time doing this 50-point turnaround. Just drive through the middle of his yard and do a big turnaround and it would be so much easier on you as a driver. And she does her 50-point turnaround. She's like, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. For the next two weeks, I work this lady every single day until finally one day. We're heading down the road. And she's like, are you sure Jerry doesn't live there anymore? Yes, he passed away. We get to the end of the street. And she cuts the bus through the middle of his yard. She's turning the bus. Now, listen, this is like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm sitting here thinking, Jerry's at work, right? Like, I'm off. I'm free. Jerry had the day off. And he comes running out the front door with the remote control in his hand. I thought it was a gun. I dove down in the seat. I was hiding. He's running. He's yelling. He's cussing. The bus driver's freaking out. He runs. What are you doing? You're crazy. All this kind of stuff. And, and there's these massive ruts in his yard. 
So the bus driver drops me off at the house, and I go inside. Now, my dad works for Guilford County School, the, the county we're in, the school system, and he oversaw all of the buses, the mechanics, and all that kind of stuff. So this got to my dad's desk very quickly. Thank God we didn't have cell phones that day because he couldn't call me immediately. He had to wait until he got home. So uh, I had some time to prepare what I was going to say. And I did what anybody else would do in a situation like that. I told, did not tell the truth. And I lied to my dad. And I said, Dad, I don't know what you're talking about, man. That lady's making all this stuff up on me and all this kind of stuff. So the next day, I'm at the middle school. My dad picks me up, my mom. We drive over to the high school. High school. There's a bus superintendent, the bus driver, me, my mom, and my dad. She's crying. I'm lying. And they believe me. They believed me. In fact, she got fired. So you're like, Derek, I know, I feel horrible about it, right? And I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this. I remember I got in the, in my, I'm in the back seat. My parents are driving me back over to the middle school. And I remember my parents in the front seat saying, I cannot believe that she would blame that on a 12-year-old boy, our son. And I'm in the back seat, should be smiling ear to ear because I just got away with it. But have you ever got away with something, but you didn't really get away with it? Like you got off the hook, but you really didn't get off the hook. You know what I'm saying? Like here's the deal. My parents were not going to punish me, but guilt was already punishing me. And that guilt began to creep in. And that guilt began to paralyze me. And this is what happens. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Guilt deactivates your faith. Guilt deactivates your faith. And I remember, I remember, uh, and I, I can tell you what guilt does. What happens is, is that when guilt comes into the scene, we avoid whatever brings that guilt to us, right? And so it's like this. If we have a broken relationship with a friend because of something we did or we did something to hurt somebody else, we try to avoid that person, right? Like you're walking down the hall and you're like, oh, junk, here she comes. I'm wearing the shirt that I stole from her the other day. And she doesn't know I got it in my closet. You know what I'm saying? And so you take, you know, you take another route around there because you don't want her to see you in her shirt. You know what I'm saying? Like guilt deactivates you. And so you begin to avoid in these situations where you have guilt. I remember my parents... We'd be driving in the car, and we would pass a bus down the street, and my heart would start beating. Or occasionally, my parents would bring up this story and what happened, and they would start talking about it. And I would, my heart would start beating 100 miles an hour. And I would start, like, having this internal freak out that, like, man, like, they can see it on my face. They know I'm lying. You ever had that? Like, you're like, dude, like, like they can tell I'm lying. Like, everything you do is suspicious. You know what I mean? Anybody ever felt that before? Like, all right, I got a perfect example of that. Check out this video. All right, well, apparently while I was out, somebody got into the kitty cat treats. Now, I'm going to go look at the suspects. Suspect number one. Is it you, Macy? See your face. Did you do this? Did you? I don't think he did. Number two. What? Did you do this? 
Denver, did you do this? Denver, was this you? <laughs> that is such a good bit. Right, like you know the face. Like you know the face. Like my little daughter, she comes in, she's two years old. And like I'll ask her a question and she'll say, she'll say, like I'll say, did you do this? And she'll deny it. She'll say no. And it's just all over her face. You just know like you did it. You know what I'm saying? Like, baby, listen, listen. Mommy's not here, and I'm not the one who got into the goldfish. You know what I'm saying? The little goldfish snacks. So it has to be you. I didn't do it. Like, she knows already now. Like, it's hardwired in us to protect ourselves, to lie to protect ourselves. But that guilt, man, it eats away at us. Sometimes it's because of something harmless, right? Like it is, man, you took $5 out of your sister's wallet. It's harmless. She doesn't know about it. Nobody's ever going to find out about it. But, man, you feel it. You know that it's there. Or maybe it is you told your parents you were going to go somewhere on a Friday night, but you actually went somewhere else, somewhere different than where you told your parents were going to go. You told your parents you were going to go to a movie with some friends, but you ended up going to a party with some other friends. You told your parents that the parents were going to be home, but they actually were not at home. Or maybe it's even something a little more intense. Something that carries greater consequences for you. Maybe it was that you went to the party on Saturday night. You woke up the next day and you weren't proud of some of the things that you got involved with that night. You felt guilty about it. Maybe you crossed some boundaries with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. And that guilt began to set in. I don't know if you've ever had those moments in your life where you just feel like, man, I just feel like I'm disappointing God, disappointing myself. And I'm telling you, man, that's what guilt does. Guilt brings us to this place of disappointment and frustration, and it deactivates our faith. It deactivates our faith. And one of the things that we do is we don't just avoid the relationships and the circumstances that we have, but we also begin to avoid God. This happens every year. Every year there's students who are so involved in H12, they're coming to H12 every single week. And then after spring break, they don't see them again. Happens every year. I even talk about it sometimes before spring break just to kind of give them a hint. Because a lot of times what happens is that they go to spring break, they go down to PCB or wherever, they make some mistakes they feel guilty about it. They feel like, hey, how can God love me? This is, you know, how are people going to accept me? People have heard things about me, and they're not going to receive me, or they're going to judge me, or whatever. And then they don't come back. And we begin to distance ourselves from church. We begin to distance ourselves from God. Or maybe sometimes it's a little more subtle. We actually come to church, but we sing the songs, but we don't actually uh, engage in what they actually mean. Or we talk about God, but we stop talking to God. And it begins to deactivate our faith. And I, I want to have this conversation with you because I know that guilt has paralyzed me in my life over things that I've done. As many of you know, I wasn't a Christian until I was 17 years old. I did a lot of things before I was a believer that I wasn't proud of. And those things paralyzed me early on in my faith. Even though I knew God had forgiven me, I still hung on to those things. And I had to let them go. And there's a story in Scripture that I want to look at. It's in Mark chapter 14. You can grab a Bible underneath your seat. You can open up there. And this is, a, this is a story about Peter. And throughout this Activate series, we're going to be talking about Peter. 
Now, Peter was in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Jesus calls, uh, Jesus calls Peter by the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman. Actually, the story goes like this. He's out there fishing. He's been fishing all night. They didn't catch any fish. They're, they're mending their nets on the, uh, right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says, throw your nets over the side, which is kind of a crazy request from someone because at night was when the best fishing was, and you would go out into the lake to catch the fish, not on the bank. And he threw the nets over the side, and so many fish were in the net that he couldn't even bring them into the boat, and they had to, they had to, he had to get help to get the nets. That There were so many fish that began to tear the nets. A pretty amazing story. And Jesus asked Peter to follow him, and Peter leaves everything to follow Jesus. He leaves his livelihood. He leaves his family. He leaves everything that's comfortable to himself to Follow this one who is, the, who is the Messiah, who he believes something was different about. It's pretty substantial. And as a part of that, Peter always was trying to prove himself. He was always trying to prove himself to Jesus. He'd mess up and he'd try to prove himself. Or even when he wasn't messing up, he'd try to prove himself. And this story that we're going to talk about here is, is, is the last night that Peter and the disciples were with Jesus before Jesus was to be crucified. In fact, this is called the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. This is what is often read when you have communion in church. Because this is where it happened, where Jesus broke the bread and he passed around the cup. And after that conversation that he has with the disciples, he gets a little person with the disciples and he lets them in on something that's about to happen. And I want to read it to you. Let's jump there at uh, Mark chapter uh, 14, verses 27 and 28. He says, All of you will desert me. But after I'm raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. All right, let's pause for a minute. That's a little bit of an awkward conversation. Like Jesus has just told the disciples, listen, I'm going to raise from the dead. In other words, I'm going to die and I'm going to leave you. And oh, by the way, I know you've been following me for the last three years and you spent all of your life with me and all your time with me, but you're actually going to desert me. And the disciples, I can imagine this moment, were pretty uncomfortable by this. And Peter, being the vocal one, being the one who wanted to prove himself, this is how he responds to this in verse 29. He says, it says, Peter said to him, even if everyone deserts you, I never will. He breezes right past what Jesus is saying about him dying, and he goes right to proving himself, and he says, listen, if everybody else walks away, if everybody else deserts you, even, even, if, I have to, uh, even if everybody deserts you, I never will. And notice what Jesus says to him, and I'm sure this came to a huge shock to Peter. I'm going to paraphrase it. Jesus basically says, not so fast, Peter. Before the rooster crows three, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times tonight. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times tonight. Now that's pretty powerful. Jesus is not saying, hey, listen, you're going to desert me like a month from now, a year from now, weeks from now. Jesus is saying, listen, tonight. You are going to desert me. You are going to deny me. And Jesus, I can imagine at this point, is really ready to raise the stakes to prove to Jesus that this is not the character of who he is. And notice what he says. Uh, if you keep going, he says this in verse 31. He says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. I know what some of you are thinking. That would be me. I'd be just like Peter. Like Jesus, 
I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to do whatever for you. Like, I believe in you so much. Like, you're the most important thing in my life. Jesus, whatever. If I had to die for you, like, I would do it. And Peter's saying, Jesus, like, I'm willing to die with you. Like, I will never deny you. And within hours, Peter denies having any connection with Jesus three times and deserts him just as Jesus said. And students, this is what I want, to, I want you to hear. Every person in this room, including myself, is one circumstance away of deactivation in their faith. If you don't stay grounded in the word of God, grounded to the community of God, and grounded to Jesus. Every one of us are susceptible to that. And so, and Peter was. Peter was. And Peter denies him. In fact, I want to read you the the portion of Scripture where he denies him so you can kind of see this laid out. Notice what it says. It says in verse 66, While Peter was, was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the priest came by. When Peter saw her warming herself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And went into an entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is, the one, is one of them. Again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near uh, said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you are Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words of Jesus that he had spoken that before the rooster crows twice, you would disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. And Peter dropped the ball. He he messed up. He screwed up. He did something stupid. And he's broken by this. He's broken by this. He's broken at the core. And to make matters worse, Jesus dies the next day on the cross, and Peter has no way of telling Jesus he's sorry. I can imagine the emotions and feelings that he was feeling. I bet he felt like, man, I let Jesus down. I let him down like I promised him. I promised him I wouldn't do that. I can't tell you how many times in my faith where there have been those times, and I just want to be transparent with you, where I have said, where I've said, God, I promise you I won't do that. God, I promise you I won't get involved in that. God, I promise you I'll stay away from that. And then you slip and fall into it. And that guilt begins, and you feel like, man, I've let Jesus down. I don't know if you've ever felt like you've let Jesus down, but I'm here to tell you, I'm a pastor, and I felt like I've let Jesus down many times in my life. And it's that guilt. And you know what guilt did to Peter? It deactivated his faith. When you continue reading, what you see is that Peter did exactly what Jesus said he would do. He deserted him with all of the disciples. They're gone. You don't see them like three days later. You don't see them on Sunday throwing a party at somebody's house going, hey, man, I'm ready for Jesus to show up. Even though Jesus told him he was going to raise from the dead three days later, they didn't believe it. And they're back out fishing. They're back out fishing and doing their old jobs. Peter's back doing his own thing, and he's hanging out with a couple of the disciples out there, and they're fishing. And I can imagine they're having these conversations like, what just happened? The last three years of our life, was that a waste? Like, like, what's going on? And I can imagine Peter's trying to get counsel from them, and he's telling them, hey, guys, listen, man, like, I really screwed up. 
And, man, I can't even apologize to him. Like, like what in the world am I going to do? And then we pick up the story in John chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. This is a lot of scripture, but I love it because I want you to see this story because it really brings to light what Jesus is trying to teach us here. It says this in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and the sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, and two of the other disciples that were there together. I can imagine they're talking and like, man, what just happened? And it says in verse 3, I'm going out to go fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, they got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Then early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. He had been raised from the dead, and he's on the shore. And he calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw out your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. I can imagine at this moment, their minds started going back to when Jesus first called them to follow him. Because this is the exact same scene that has happened. And it says, and then when they did, they were unable to haul the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples, whom, disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. And I want you to notice what Peter does. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garments around his waist, for he had taken them off. He jumped in the water, and the disciples in the boat followed him, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards away. Think about this picture. I want you to see this. Peter is dying for a second chance. Peter is dying for a do-over. Peter is dying for forgiveness. Peter is dying for grace. And, and, and it seems like this is not going to come. It's not going to happen for him. And I can imagine this is all that's been weighing on him for three days. Jesus raises from the dead. He's on the shore. And when John looks at him and says, it is the Lord, he doesn't even hesitate, the Bible says. He throws his clothes on. He grabs his outer garments. He throws them on. He dives in the lake. He's swimming. I can imagine he's weeping on the swim all the way to Jesus. He gets out of the water. He embraces them. They have this moment together. And they sit down as the disciples. And they have a meal, probably eating some of the fish that they just caught in the net. And towards the end of the meal, Jesus has a conversation with Peter. And it says this, verse 15 through 17 of John 21, it says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Talking about the other disciples. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. How many times did Jesus, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times did Jesus ask him if he loved him? Three times. And Jesus closes out this section of scripture, and he says, and, and it, the scripture closes out, and it says this. Then Jesus says to him, follow me. Jesus didn't say, look, you're, you're not welcome with me. Hey, you, you dropped the ball, you screwed up. Hey, man, like, I, you had your chance. He says, follow me. 
Jesus extends to him grace. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Failing doesn't keep you from following. Failing doesn't keep you from following. When you fall, when you find yourself in a tough situation, when you mess up, don't let that deactivate your faith. Don't let that prevent you from, don't let that get you to a place where you're avoiding church and avoiding God and avoiding the people that are going to support you and care for you. Don't get to that place because it will deactivate your faith. I think that each word that Jesus said in this whole paragraph that I just read to you was Jesus extending grace to Peter. And so if guilt deactivates our faith, you can write this down, grace activates our faith. Guilt deactivates our faith, grace activates our faith. There's a truth here that we should not allow our faults to keep us from following today. We should not allow our faults to keep us from following. That the remedy to guilt is grace. See, the cool thing about grace is this. Grace is something that you don't deserve. That's what grace means. It means receiving something you do not deserve. Grace is a gift. God gives us salvation by his grace. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve that for the things that we've done in our life. But God gives it to, gives it to us freely. We haven't done anything to deserve it, but God pours it out and lavishes it on us. And we get that forgiveness and we get that grace. Grace is powerful. And grace changes us. And I want to say this because I think this is important when we're talking about students and young people. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is not a license to sin. I hear people say sometimes, hey, you know what? Hey, it's, it's all good, man. God's going to forgive me anyway. It's all good, man. I can do this. It's not a big deal, bro. Like, like I messed up. It's cool, man. But God's going to forgive me anyway. There is no forgiveness without repentance, and there's no repentance without godly sorrow. The Bible tells us godly sorrow leads us to repentance. And so there's no repentance without godly sorrow. In other words, being broken over your sin. If you treat sin casually, you've missed it because let me tell you something. Sin cost us greatly, and it cost God greatly. Remember, it cost him his son. And grace cost him his son as well. That's a pretty powerful reality if you think about it. The seriousness of our sin should be, for us to put it in perspective, is to look to the cross because that is what was required to cover our sin. It's serious, and we should treat it as so as believers. So what do I do with that? I think there's two things you need to know, or two things you need to do uh, or, or think through. When you're dealing with guilt, there's two responses you have. You either, you either conceal it or you confess it. You conceal it or you confess it. People who conceal it, what they do is they ignore it, they hide it, they cover it up. And you need to know this, you need to hear this. Whatever you cover up, God will uncover. Whatever you cover up, God will uncover. I told that bus driver to drive through that yard and she drove through the yard and I felt like I got off and that guilt followed me for years. I was 12 years old when that happened. I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. God had prompted me many, many times as an early Christian to come clean to my parents about what really happened on that day. But I was too embarrassed and guilt had gripped me so much that I couldn't bring myself to do it. In fact, I never told any person what had happened on that day. Not a friend, not my brother, not an accountability partner, nobody. 
I was 22 years old, 10 years later. I got asked to come and speak at a church and preach at a church. I was going to go preach at this church, and I'm young at that point. I'm going to preach to that church, and, and, and I'm preparing for it. And I just felt like God prompting me. They asked me to speak on honesty and integrity. And I felt like God was asking me to share that story. I was like, all right, God, I'll share that story. I've never shared it with anybody. I'll share that story. So I prepared the story. I get up there, and I start preaching the sermon on honesty and integrity. And I said, let me give you an example. I remember. I remember back when I was 12 years old, a story about something that happened. We had a guy at the end of our street, and I began saying that. And our bus driver every day would drive down to the road and do this 50-point turnaround. And I got to that point, I'm doing the 50-point turnaround, and I look out, and my parents are sitting on the back row in the back corner of this church. They had heard that I was speaking there, and they had drove like two hours and snuck in the back, and I didn't know they were there. And I saw him in that moment. And I could not cover it up anymore because I'm already in the illustration. I couldn't be like, never mind, guys. I'm not going to say this anymore. Whatever you cover, God, whatever you cover, God uncovers. And so I told the story. Afterwards, we went to lunch. Very awkward. <laughs> I'm shaking people's hands at the end of the service. I'm like, hey, guys. Oh, no. And uh, we get to lunch. And we sit down. I said, Mom and Dad, I should have told you guys this years ago. I am so sorry that I lied to you guys. And this is what my mom and dad did. They laughed. And they said, we knew you told her all along. We just wanted you to tell us. I was like, what? The truth is, is that God knows all along. You may have it hidden from people all in your life, and many of them know, but God knows. Proverbs tells the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching over good and evil. And the Bible would tell us that we don't conceal it, we don't cover it up, but we uncover it. The Bible would tell us to confess it, and that we would go and confess it to the person that we've hurt so that that person can give us forgiveness. And then we go, in James 5, 19, it tells us to do that. And then in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, we confess our sins to God and God cleanses it. He washes it away. What's cool about it is, is that when we uncover our sin, God covers it. See, when we try to cover up our sin, God uncovers it. He brings it out into the open because that's what light does. Light exposes the darkness. But when we open up and we uncover our sin, then the grace of God can cover our sin. And so we don't have to live in guilt. We don't have to let that paralyze us. We don't have to let guilt deactivate our faith. And so the band's going to come up. And we're going to close out tonight. And this is what I want you to do tonight in this moment. I want this to be a little bit of a time of reflection for you. And you may be an adult in here dealing with the same stuff that I'm talking about. Because this is the everyday battle for us. Maybe tonight you just need to have a little conversation with God. You need to confess some things to him. Say, God, I need your forgiveness for this. God, I felt guilty about this. Jesus, to be honest with you, I feel like I've let you down. I feel like I've let you down. I feel like I've let you down so much it feels like it's almost impossible to walk a Christian life because I feel like all I am is a huge disappointment. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I've felt that way before. And you need to know that he's sitting there going, listen, I love you. 
You are my son. You are my daughter. What you've done, you may think that's a big deal, but I promise you what my son did on the cross is a far bigger deal. And if you'll just bring it to me, and if you'll open it up and you'll uncover it, then my grace can cover it up, and you don't have to walk around paralyzed with the guilt of something that you've done in your life that you're not proud of. And if you think, man, whatever I've done is so egregious that there's no way God can forgive me, think about it this way. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. If God can forgive you for killing his son, God can forgive you for anything. So God, I pray for these students. I pray, God, that you would work in their hearts tonight. I know that there are students that are not in this room tonight that needed to hear this message tonight because they have let guilt deactivate their faith. I pray, God, that the students that are in this room would take that message to their friends, that they would not let guilt deactivate their faith, that they would lean in deeper into your grace because that grace covers our sin. It's so sweet how amazing your grace is. So, God, I just ask, Lord, that you would work in hearts, you'd work in minds tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.